Thank you for listening to Scandinavian Crimes Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode links and be part of our other social media platforms where you can leave a topic suggestion or even share some of your insights regarding the subject matter of the episode. We will always do our best to provide a well-researched episode, but sometimes due to limited access to information and translation issues, some information can be lost. It is therefore good to do your own research and get a deeper understanding of a case of your own interest. So with that all said, let us start today's episode. Welcome to Scandinavian Crimes. My name is Devante and say hello to my lovely co-host Delilah. Hello everyone. And on this podcast, we will cover famous Scandinavian criminals who made their mark throughout Scandinavian history. So today we're going to be covering the story of Stur Ragnar Bergwall, born April 26, 1950, but notoriously and famously known as Thomas Quick. Um, basically, he is someone from Sweden who many previously believed he had been like a serial killer, um, having confessed to more than 30 murders while incarcerated in a mental institution for personality disorders. Quick was convicted of eight murders. However, he withdrew all of his confessions in 2008, as a result of which his murder convictions were squashed and released from the hospital. This episode would raise awareness about how murder convictions could have been previously obtained on such weak evidence in various forms of criminal justice systems across the world, and has been called the largest miscarriage of justice in Swedish history. So today, we are covering the story of Thomas Quick. Thomas Quick grew up in Korsnas with six siblings. He adopted his mother's maiden name, Quick, around 1991. After a history of delinquency, molestation of boys, and stabbing a man, Quick was sentenced in 1991 for armed robbery. After the robbery conviction, Quick was confined to care in an institution for the criminally insane. During therapy, he confessed to more than 30 murders committed in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland between 1964 and 1993. The therapy sessions were followed by police interviews. One of his confessions led to the solving of an 18-year-old murder considering to be an unsolvable case, and another to the informal solving of a murder in Vaxjo in 1964. This 1964 crime was outside the then 25-year statute of limitations in Sweden, but without information given by Quick, the case was considered closed. With no eyewitnesses or technical forensics evidence to connect him to the crimes, Quick was convicted solely on the basis of his own confessions while undergoing recovered memory therapy on, I'm going to butcher this, benzodiazepines, following by police interrogations. Details in the confessions were wildly wrong and Quick relied on hints and body language from his interrogators to guess the answers expected of him. Quick had been researching unsolved murders on microfilm in the Royal Library, Stockholm, when he was released, and confessing to a murder in Norway led to a Norwegian newspaper writing his story. Quick requested back copies, including early reports of the story from Norwegian journalists, and could include details unknown to Swedish police, and they concluded that only the perpetrator knew. Nine-year-old Teresa Johannesson had disappeared from Fajel in 1988 and had not been found since. Ten years later, Quick was convicted of murdering her. The crucial evidence was the discovery of a burnt bone fragment from what should have been a child. In 2012, laboratory tests showed that the supposed bone fragments were composed of wood and glue fused together, probably hardboard. An analysis had not been performed before the evidence was presented to the court. 
Examination of his answers show that his initial attempts to provide answers to questions concerning, for example, murder weapons and birthmarks were wrong. Leading questions were asked in police interviews, and initial erroneous guesses were edited out of the version presented to the court. The involvement of the therapist meant that Quick's early failure to provide anything more than a vague, confused, and facilitating picture that gradually sharpened in focus was explained away as a result of repressed memories being retrieved as a result of the therapy. In the judgment of the case of Teresa, one can read that the psychologist Christensen told the court traumatic events are retained in the memory, but there can be protective mechanisms that work and unconscious to repress the recall. Similar arguments about Quick's repressed memories reoccur again and again in the judgments. The credibility of Quick's confession was widely debated in Swedish media. Critics of these confessions and trials, included a policeman involved in one of the investigations, wrote that there was no evidence that tied Quick to any of the murders he had confessed, and until he had showed something that he had taken belonged to one of the victims, the probability was that he was a compulsive liar. In December 2008, television interview with Hans Rostam Quick denied taking part either in any of the murders for which he had been sentenced or in the more than 30 murders he had confessed to. Because the only evidence to support the convictions were his own confessions, which he now had retracted and nothing else remained on which the base of judgments, Sturbergwell, Quick, changed his lawyer, and the eight murder convictions handed down. The six trials were all squashed on appeal. The last one was squashed in July 2013. Thomas Quick, who now reverted to his birth name, Stur Bergwell, was set at liberty after having been confined for more than 20 years in an institution for the criminally insane, with conditions that he refrains from alcohol and narcotics. Between 1994 and 2001, Quick was convicted of eight murders. In Sweden, a defendant also gains access to the full police investigation prior to the trial. Quick's lawyer, Klaes Borgström, has been criticized for failing to protect his mentally disturbed client's objective interest in being judged not guilty. In the years following 1990, when Quick was sentenced to closed psychiatric confinement, he confessed to several well-publicized unsolved murders. His first murder, according to his own accounts, occurred in Vaxjo in 1964 when Quick was only 14 years old. The victim, Thomas Blogrim, was described by Quick as being the same age but not as strong and tall as himself. At the time of his confession, the murder was already subject to the statute of limitations, which Quick later admitted was the reason for confessing, but later it transpired that Quick had a watertight alibi. On the day of the murder, he was attending his own confirmation with his family at the Pentecostal church. The second alleged victim was Alvar Larson, whom Quick claimed to have murdered at Sircon at the Lake Asnan outside of the town of Ersholt. According to Quick's sister, Quick never left Fallon at the time of the murder. The credibility of Quick's confession had been widely debated in Swedish media since 1993 up until 2008, when Quick withdrew his confessions. There have been consistent doubts about the reliability of his statements, in which some of his confessions have been proven to be fabrications. The two African refugees Quick confessed to murdering in Norway were found to be alive and very well. A DNA sample from the crime in Norway was subsequently found to be a mismatch and there was no technical forensic evidence to link Quick to any of these crimes. Another dubious circumstance is the fact that no witness have ever testified to seeing Quick in proximity of any of the crime scenes, even though more than 10,000 people were interviewed for the intricate details. Critics of these confessions and the trials claim that Quick never murdered anyone, but that he was a compulsive liar. 
Among the critics are the parents of the child he confessed to having murdered in the late 1970s. In response to these accusations, Quick himself wrote an article for the Swedish newspaper Dagens Nyheter in 2001 in which he said that he refused to cooperate further with the authorities concerning all open murder investigations. In November 2006, Thomas Quick's trials were reported to be the Swedish Chancellor of Justice by retired lawyer Pell Svensson on behalf of the parents of the murder victim who wished to have the trials declared invalid. Several principals in the fields of law and psychiatry, among them Swedish criminologist and television crime commenter Leif G.W. Person and two police officers involved in the investigation of the murders who refused to involve themselves further in the investigation, all claim that Quick has a history of mental illness, but it was unlikely he was guilty of any crimes to which he had confessed. The handling of the Quick case has been described as a most scandalous chapter of Scandinavian history, branding it as glaring incompetence, naivete, and opportunism within the police and judicial system. Quick withdrew all his confessions in 2008 during the recording of a TV documentary made by prize-winning investigative journalist Hans, who died shortly before his book version was published. Quick's attorney contended on the prosecution withheld important investigative material from the defense, which the prosecution adamantly denied. Quick's attorney claimed that his client was mentally ill and was being given prescription drugs when he confessed to the killings. These arguments were some of the grounds for squashing all eight murder convictions in six trials and six appeals. Thomas Quick, now having reverted to his birth name, Stur Bergwell, recanted his confessions and requested that Svea Court of Appeal ordered a new trial. In 2009, the court appeal granted the retrial of the Yanan Levy case. In judgment, the courts found that the lower court had heard Quick correctly identify the murder weapon. However, the information had been withheld from the court that initially Quick had made many erroneous attempts to identify the murder weapon before finally giving an account that corresponded with police findings. Quick moved for judgment of acquittal and was acquitted in September 2010. Quick's counsel also declared that his intentions to ask for a retrial of the Teresa Johannesson case, claiming that Quick had an alibi for the day when Teresa Johannesson was abducted and murdered. SKL found in March 2010 that two exhibits claimed by the prosecution to be bone fragments were in fact pieces of hardboard. A retrial was granted and Quick was formally acquitted when the prosecution dropped the charges. July 30th, 2013, Quick was officially acquitted of all of his murder convictions. Stur Bergwell, Thomas Quick, has been released from Satter's Institution for Criminally Insane, and most of his treatment plan has been made confidential and subject to secrecy. However, from the uncensored portions released to the press, it is apparent that Bergwell, aka Thomas Quick, has not taken medication for several years and is assessed as not requiring any. So, this story was very all over the place. So I just wanted you to clarify some things uh, because it seems like he like in he did something in the 90s and then he was put into in a mental hospital or he already was in a mental hospital and then he c confessed crimes he did in the between 60s to 90s like it's it's and then he he was in, like everything seems so like all over the place and I, I'm like unsure of what is true and what is not true <laughs> basically because critics said that he was like a pathological liar and that he would drug 
and then but they found evidence based on what he said but he was also interested in unsolvable crimes or like cold cases and stuff so it was, it's hard for me to follow through all of this so can you please like I don't know clarify things <laughs> give me like a mind map of like when everything happened because it's very all over the place right now <laughs> so basically this is a condensed version of what happened essentially they were trying to use different points in time to i guess validate their point that he could or couldn't have done the crime from both ends of prosecution and defense so he did commit a crime in the 90s when he was about, I think, 14, 15, where he had molestation tendencies and he also had killed a man when he was a teenager and he already had served his time for that. Um, the confusion starts mostly because of the fact that when he actually started to, uh, you know, tell the police of what was going on, they had coerced him into actually telling them the answers that they wanted to hear. So a lot of people did not really, you know, either believe him or they did believe him in saying that why would he confess to something that he did? Um, and most of this did come about when he was in the psychiatric um, institution where basically he was kind of, you know, going through the motions of getting himself or getting to a better version of himself. And unfortunately, what can happen sometimes is people tend to you know, a part of that process, especially if they're having like not necessarily a psychotic break, but maybe a dissociative kind of moment, they can confess to things without knowing. So that's what led to him getting confrontational with the police themselves or getting into the interrogation. But the thing that, you know, we talked about already is the fact that he didn't know much of the details They were guiding him towards the details. They were trying to explain to him the answer that they wanted in order to get a confession. So they kind of like took advantage of his mental state and kind of used him as a scapegoat in order for people to, you know, say like, oh, he did these crimes. He must have done it. And they just used him as a method of saying like, oh, they solved it when in reality it wasn't him. He was just someone who lied about it because of his mental state. And some people were also using it to discredit him as well, saying he's a pathological liar, some of the specialists. So that's what kind of what they were doing throughout this whole story. Just a lot of back and forth of trying to discredit whether or not he did or did not do it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they found no nothing like they found nothing on him. But he somehow I feel like the experts said that he uh, he had a therapist, too, who said something about <clears throat> him uh avoiding traumatic events by like he's having a memory loss and kind of like trying to fill in the blanks hence why he's seen as a pathological liar with other critiques and the psycho psychiatrists and stuff but it's like he did find the weapons but then he said that the interview excluded that he tried many times to guess what the weapon and stuff were and it's interesting it's like i don't know what is true or not and i and that's why i, I felt it was very unfair in the beginning where they said that uh you know he uh he need to go to the mental hospital and stuff but i and because he he was uh he had hard time with like memory loss and traumatic events and i'm like but he caused these traumatic events why is he having issues with it 
But now, when I'm like trying to understand everything, it's like, okay, maybe he lied and just tried to puzzle everything together because he didn't have any memory of it. And, or is that why? Or because, like, remember, he didn't lie. It was just the fact that he was in a vulnerable mental state and the police had guided his confession to what they wanted because they did not, you know, uh, they didn't, I guess, want to investigate any further. So basically, he was almost forced to give an answer that he wanted or that the, that the police wanted in order for the, him to be able to, you know, even move on from the interrogation process. And they also excluded stuff. They excluded parts of the interview. Uh, and also back in the days, they didn't have any good kind of, um, what's it called, the evidence-based techniques and stuff <laughs> I don't know the fancy materials but like they they didn't have that back in the days and that's why when they had that now in the 2000s they were able to uh, do all the testings and they found out that most of the things that he confessed to were, was not tied to him they also found alibi what I thought was interesting is why he decided to all of a sudden deny all of this was it because he was treated and became better with his mental state that he was able to realize that this is not what i did at all and yeah, so even though he got better with his mental state that's when he started to piece together that he was taken advantage of by prosecution and the police um because um there was just so much going on during that time and he was not very well mentally and he had no recollection of the events. He didn't have any details regarding what happened. He didn't have any of the, there was no proof or evidence that he did anything, but they just assumed, you know, he did it because he had confessed. And at least the logic back in the day was you wouldn't confess to a crime that you didn't do, which is not true. Back in those days, a lot of police forces around the world had very, 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 very shady tactics when it came to uh, the way that they interrogated people. They would interrogate people for hours and hours and hours, you know, and they would get tired. So um, they would do that. And then ultimately, you know, when you get exhausted from the interrogation process, they would, you know, get you nice and weak mentally and hungry or starving or thirsty. And at some point they will just, you know, you, you will basically confess to a crime that you didn't commit, even though there was absolutely no evidence of you doing that crime because it was just an easier route for them compared to them actually investigating and doing their job at the time. And this wasn't just something that happened in Sweden, it happened in the US as well. The criteria for evidence has substantially increased in the criminal justice system. Currently, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not perfect either because there are some cases where this still happens. But nonetheless, at that time, they didn't have evidence on him that he had done something. And mm. the, the the criteria for conviction was so low back then. Yeah, they, they had zero evidence. But they they did find details and stuff that was only available to the police. However, he was very good in um, seeing the like their uh, body language, how they were the police. I mean, the investigators. They were able, he was able to answer in a way that they wanted, and also. It's so hard for me to because I'm not I was not there there, but it's still like I know that the police and the investigators knew how to direct him into a way that they wanted him to answer, and he also followed through with that. But I think it 
it's also like, can it be a coincidence that there was some that actually was involved? Uh, like there was some of the cases that was found that he was guilty in. Um, cause there was like this one, what was it? Like where he, his first one in Vexha, but then he had an alibi, right? Cause he went to church and the other alibi was his sister, but like aren't like the sister one, isn't that like a close relative and she can lie? Isn't that also normal? I'm just like trying to see other possibilities as well. Uh, that's why I found this so tricky in a way. Um, because it's sad that he, we don't really know what he really had either or what kind of like, we only know that he had memory loss because of traumatic events, but we don't really know what other diagnosis or such he had. Um, but it took him years for him to be able to deny all the charges, right? Or all his crimes. Yeah, basically it took a little while because he had to go through the process of doing appeals for a few cases, like I think one at a time, but I think you can, you know, appeal cases concurrently, but essentially it did take him a while or a little while for him to basically uh, um, kind of go through each court case and actually appeal them each and then prove that he was innocent and that in some cases he had alibis. But yeah, I found this case really important, especially because we're trying to put out uh, awareness out there because, you know, situations like this does still happen. Like I said, it's not as common, but unfortunately, we tend to see situations like this in the criminal uh, justice system, uh, primarily against people of color. So it can be black, even in some cases, um, some cases, Asians or Middle Eastern or whatever your ethnic background, if you're usually not, you know, uh, typically um you know, white passing in a lot of cases, this does still happen where the criteria for evidence is so much weaker because of court bias and they will overlook a lot of stuff, including motivation, including evidence, just because, you know, the cops were able to force or basically use the high anxiety situation to their advantage and get a confession out of you. So like I said, it doesn't happen as often, but you know, this does still happen. But back in the day during this time when Thomas Quick was going through this process, this was an extremely common practice for a lot of police officers across the world to coerce a lot of people into committing, um, not committing, but basically uh, confessing to crimes. And there were a lot of people who were actually innocent. And that's at least in the US as well. That's why we have the Innocence Project where you know, a lot of people who were involved in very shady investigative tactics, um, they get evidence, they find out that they didn't do it and they get freed. And it's really unfortunate that stuff like this had to happen anyway, and that people wouldn't want to investigate and figure out who really did it. Because if you have the wrong person in jail, then that means the person who really committed that crime is still out there. and They're more likely to commit it again because they didn't get caught. So that's why this, you know, this particular one is super duper important for a lot of people out there. You can know not only based on confessions, you need other proof to further like judge someone accurately. And I think it's good that other experts also criticize this case and uh, that he also got released from all of them or were able to uh, be freed from the other eight cases that he admitted. So after saying all that and hearing all that, please let us know what you think about this case and our social medias. You can hit us up on TikTok, Instagram, uh, different platforms on Facebook as well. 
um, and just communicate with us what you think about cases like this, where, you know, this is a serious miscarriage of justice, especially in Swedish history. And this particular case was not really blown up to the level that it was until relatively recently. When I say relatively recently, I mean, within my lifetime, I'm not even 30 yet. So when this happened, you know, when this was gaining traction around 2008, um, you know, I was what that's like around, at least in the U.S. middle school, high school. So and I'm referring to my age. So that's not that long ago. That's something that people can look back and actually remember um, and, you know, recall. So this is something that was within this generation. And, you know, obviously the law and law enforcement and the criminal justice system across the world is constantly evolving. And we're, you know, trying to strive for a better process for everybody. At least I would surely hope so. But um, but yeah, you know, let us know what you think about stuff like this. And uh, Delilah, is there anything that you want to say uh, regarding any food or anything like that to wrap up the episode? Yes, I have one. Uh, I would like for an egg omelet with uh, spinach and feta cheese. Feta cheese? Sorry, I said that weirdly. Feta cheese and uh, like a toasted bread or two because I like food. And uh, yeah, and also, you know, spices, of course. Yeah. I'm so dead. But uh, me personally, I can go for some ribs right now. Um, some nice barbecue ribs. Actually, I think I can go for a nice burger right now, too, to be honest with you. Uh, Ooh. Yeah, it sounds good, right? But uh, yeah, let us know what you think. And uh, we will see you guys next week, right? Next week. So peace out, everyone. Bye. Bye.